prices go up. We also, in the last quarter of last year, and it was pretty consistent through last year, raised our productivity on an annualized rate at 1.7%, which is great. What does all that mean? Well, if wages go up at 2.4% a year and productivity goes up at 1.7% a year, what we have is a 0.7% additional money without value coming into the economy. That would ultimately, in a perfect world and where the math is simple, lead to seven-tenths of 1% inflation going forward, which was way below the Fed's target of 2%. Here's my hope. The Fed is going to see those numbers, and they're really smart. And they're going to recognize that those numbers don't signal inflation. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Welcome back to the Personal Wealth Coach. This is hour two of March 11th. I guess we say the day began on March 11th, one hour ago, because that's when we started our radio program. How's that for ego? <laughs> uh, this is our second hour broadcasting, I should say. And uh, we have lots of stuff to talk about. Uh, The biggest thing in the news we spent most of the first hour talking about was the 16th largest bank in the country collapsing, the Silicon Valley Bank. And we mentioned just a tiny bit in passing Silvergate, another bank collapsing there. We mentioned also in passing um, Circle, Uh, the crypto sort of not really crypto place that just kind of secondary banking world. It's stablecoin, which is supposed to be stuck to $1 for one unit, um, broke its peg, which means it's, it's not marked to the dollar anymore. It's down to 87 cents on the dollar. Why? Because they had a bunch of the deposits of dollars stuck over in SVB. So when we say there's knock-on effects or when we say collapse means that others are lapsing at the same time, expect this kind of to ripple through the crypto community for sure and definitely through the venture capital and startup community. I like that, ripple through the crypto. Ripple through the crypto. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I would not be surprised that one of the next headlines is that you see a run on Circle Stablecoin and them shut down. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all of this is the same thing. It's all a case of people assuming that there is no risk where there is, in fact, a lot of risk. And I've been beating that drum this entire program. I've been beating that drum for a long time. But it's important <laughs> to recognize any place you pool your money with other people's money because you want to get a, an interest rate or a return on it, there is risk. Now, the United States government has taken some very specific actions and passed some very specific laws to change the nature of or ameliorate that risk. You need to know what they are and what they cover. And it's so important that you know, need to know whether or not there is a backing to the place where you put your money. And most people, 99.99% of the people I talk to are just blissfully unaware of the insecurity or the unsecured nature of places they put their money. I did. It drives me crazy. One of the things that we've we've harped on this for years, so we're not jumping on the bandwagon now that the collapse has occurred. We pointed at this as being 
a representation of shadow banks that have always occurred. We all we we get these waves of sort of banks so we don't have to be regulated and then they collapse and then another one comes along and then they collapse and then another one and they happen over these long long periods of time in my career. Before my career, before your career, everything was shadow banking. There wasn't regulating bank, regulated banking in the United States. We went about 100 years little less than 100 years without a central bank. Uh, Andrew Jackson got rid of our equivalent of the Federal Reserve, and we didn't get another one until the beginning of the 20th century after the collapse of 1907. And I want to bring a local to our area story into this. One, The very first college in Texas that was co-ed began in the mid to late 1800s in Salado, Texas. Well, that's where we both live. It is just a ruin now, but it was a uh, establishment. Four governors of the state of Texas graduated from there. Uh, it was as, as established a university as you could get in Texas at the time. When it was made, there were still battles with the natives occurring. So this goes way back. It burned down, and there was this big uh, urge to raise more money. Local families donated land to auction off to rebuild the the college. So then they got that done, and they and they got insurance on the building after it burned down. And so they burned it burned down again, and the insurance paid, and they rebuilt the building again. And they said, we really need insurance on this thing keeps build, burning down. And there was some thought of arson at the time. There's all kinds of conspiracy theories that lived through time on this. Then it burned down again. And they got paid their insurance money and they deposited it at the bank. And this was 1907. And the bank collapsed, as did banks all the way across the country. And J.P. Morgan, the man, not the company, stepped in with his own private wealth and dumped a bunch of money into the banking system to shore it up and said, we really need a central bank to do this because at some point you're not going to have one financial person with enough cash on hand to do this. Elon Musk doesn't have a bunch of cash on hand. It's tied up in all these investments. That's what he's talking about. Somebody has to have a bunch of cash sitting on the sidelines, ready to just dump it into the system to prevent whole systems from breaking down. So this is where the FDIC comes in. And this is where the Federal Reserve Bank comes in. It's a banking system with a huge network of banks that pay it money. The, the interest that is charged to the banks for their deposits and, um, and vice versa uh, the Federal Reserve winds up being very profitable here because they're available as the lender of last resort, the ones that can step in and say, here's a bunch of money to shore up the system. A shadow bank isn't involved in that system at all. And a lot of the crypto banks, a lot of like, there's the one that we're talking about right now is uh, Circle Internet Financial meant to mimic the value of the U.S. dollar and called their coin the USD coin. USD meaning United States dollar coin. Well, there's already a United States dollar coin. There's Susan Anthony on one of them. So, so from a perspective of naming propriety, this sounds a lot safer than it is. It sounds like you're saying this is a U.S. dollar coin. You deposit here, it's just the same as a dollar, only we're going to pay you some interest too. Well, they had deposits 
at banks to help back up that dollar. And the bank just lost its assets and the amount of money that they had deposited at that bank was a lot, um, measured in lots of billions. And when that's now tied up, that's obviously above the FDIC limit. (laughs) The FDIC was there to protect small investors. Big investors are supposed to know to put their money in other places, but they needed it liquid and they wanted to make a little bit of interest on the money so that they could pay it back too. And so they put it in the bank that was offering the highest interest rate. And anytime, even safe banks, this is FDIC stuff, any deposit you have above the FDIC limit, If that bank is paying you more than the other banks, there's a reason why. Always. This isn't, maybe there's a reason why. This isn't, uh, you know, they're just doing it out of the goodness of their heart. They want to pay you more money because they're just friendly. We're talking about a bank. That's not, that's not in, (laughs) no, it's not being friendly. Why are they paying more? There's ways as an individual you can game that system. The Puerto Rico bank. Uh, the whole banking system of Puerto Rico had a collapse not that long ago. And they were paying the absolute highest interest rates on all their stuff. And if you stayed within the FDIC insurance coverage, you got to reap the benefit of that extra interest until they went under, and then you got your money back. But if you put everything you had there way above what was insured, it was not safe, and you lost a lot of money. Uh, You got some of your money back. It was not a 100% loss. It wasn't even a 50 cent loss per dollar. But quite often, you're talking about 80 cents to 90 cents on the dollar for this sort of thing because those federally backed banks and the FDIC says you have to have other stuff to back this. When we look at what's going to happen to the people who had their money at SVB, what is, and, and Stephen sent us an email and basically had questions pretty down to the details of what we've already answered. But I'm going to go the next layer out. If a big company, a startup company, a little company with a lot more than $250,000 had their deposits at SVB, what does that mean? Well, SVB does have investments, a portfolio of investments to back it up. They loaned money to the United States government just longer term. And that money, if they sold that that contract, that bond, if they sold it today, it's worth less than what they loaned because interest rates have gone up. If they hold them to the end, to the 30-year point, they'll get all their money back. So some kind of balance is where the regulators come in and say, how do we liquidate these assets without destroying the value of the assets to get the most back to the people who are owed? So just because you don't have the FDIC insurance doesn't mean you lose everything. But you're going to lose something in a lot of cases. And we're not used to that. The global financial crisis hit and the FDIC did something weird. This is 2008, 2009. They covered everybody without regard to limit. They didn't stop at $250,000 and we're used to that now. The year before that, it had been limited to $100,000 and they jumped it up. They never tied it to inflation. So it's the same value as it was in 07. But that that's the point is that we need to be aware that risks exist and that the government's not going to come and bail you out every time and, and you have something to add or take this I just, to a different direction. I want, I want to agree with you. And I think one of the things that has happened here is we do not listen to George Jorge 
actually, Santayana, who said those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. The last financial crisis, when financial institutions failed, routinely the government stepped in and rescued the people who had their money there. Way, as Jake said, way above the FDIC insurance levels or anything else. It was just a blanket rescue to everybody. And th- th- there's a name for that, and it's called moral, what is it, moral something. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Moral risk, or it's it's moral something. Uh, moral which, hazard? Moral hazard. There you go. Okay. Like, it's kind of like Merle Hazard. Right. Merle uh, Haggard. Yeah. Merle Haggard. Yeah. Well, the banks have hazard. Merle Haggard involved here. And moral hazard was talked about a lot at the time. The alternative to doing that was to watch the economy crater into a depression. So they had a choice. They could either step in and do something that might generate another collapse down the road because people would assume the government wouldn't go, wasn't going to do what the law said, but rather expediently jump in and fix things. And I think a good decision was made by, by George Bush and Ben Bernanke, Ben Ben Bernanke, and all the other people who were involved in basically bailing out a bunch of banks. Yeah, it was not. Their it was not popular by any means. That, and we have to. That's. It's never popular to bail out banks. Uh, but without it, we almost certainly would have entered into a depression and probably a war. Instead, we came through it smelling like roses, and we have been fundamentally. And I know this is going to strange. Recovering from that ever since the event of the bailout, which is one of the reasons interest rates have been so low. I, I just have to add that what we smell like coming out of a financial event might have more to do with what cologne or shampoo you use than what. Yeah. I, yeah I'm just, I'm just saying that that's all. That's you, you, you definitely have a point there, but this is where we are today. And again, how many times have I said this, but if you're just tuning in, look at where your money is. What is the protection for it if the institution holding it goes under? Does it apply to you? Three questions. You got to ask that question. We, yeah, 250, generally speaking, read the fine print, $250,000 deposited in an, or less deposited in an account at a bank insured by the FDIC, you're pretty safe. Just read the fine print, make there, sure there are covered. There are some minor, there are some exceptions there because it has to be U.S. money and there's a whole series of things. But a lot of people have a lot more money than that, and they got to find some place to put it. And if you and have... they think, and they're making assumptions, they're making big assumptions. And um, I'll just come right out and say one of the things is, and I hope I'm wrong. Lord knows, I hope I'm wrong, and I don't know that I'm right. But since I saw this happen once before, I can see it happening again. A lot of money over the last several years has gone to life insurance companies to buy deferred. Single premium deferred annuity. Those single premium deferred annuities, in many cases, were offering to pay you 3%. Does it sound familiar if you listen to us talk about SVB Bank a minute ago? Offering to pay you 3% when the banks were only paying you at most one. So people jumped into the annuity and they have their money there and there's a surrender charge on it in many cases, so they're scared to get it out. But if we repeat history, we're going to do what happened in the early 1980s. People are going to look at the fact that this insurance company is giving them 3% and they're really happy. But they look at the bank and the bank starts to offer them 5%. And there's no surrender charge at the bank. Uh, well, there's a little one. <laughs> Six months interest in some cases. Right. But they look at the surrender charge on their annuity and they say, I'm willing to pay that to get that higher interest rate. And they start pulling the money out. 
then the annuity companies are going to have to start selling those long-term bonds that they bought with a 3 or 4% interest rate at a loss because interest rates are up. The difference between SVB and an insurance company is if they go under, there is no federal agency that insures anything in a life insurance or annuity company. Now, some of their products, the variable products, the separate account, generally, not always, read the prospectus and read your contract, is covered under the Investment Company Act of 1940, so the creditors of the insurance company can't get to it. But if you have a fixed interest rate annuity, you have made a loan to an insurance company. That's what happens. If the insurance company or, goes yeah. under, or you a, need to know what happens. Or the fixed account, even in a variable Yes. Product. Anytime an insurance company guarantees you an interest rate, you have made a loan to an insurance company and it's as good as the insurance company, which is a single company. And if that company goes under, you really need to understand what happens if the person, the entity to whom you have made this loan runs out of money. Yeah. And let me just say that when you sign a credit card agreement, you're issuing a guarantee that you'll pay back what the debt that you accrue and the interest that's charged on it. You're issuing a guarantee and you say, this is a guaranteed loan, but it's only as good as you. And if your credit rating's really bad, your guarantee's not worth a lot. So due diligence and looking at the underlying portfolio at an insurance company and knowing that if you're locking something up for a long period of time or forever with, with little to no recourse, you, you really should do your due diligence in advance. Right. And we have another question out there as well from okay. Inquisitor John, but Reagan 2.0, is this outcome anything similar to Reagan's success in outspending the Russians leading to the collapse of the Soviet Union? Is the CCP next? And that's a big question. Um, no. No, it's not the same because it's not related to defense spending and the rest. What is similar is the way the United States expanded in the Industrial Revolution. There was a lot of debt that came from that. So let me give the, the parallel here. The time of U.S. Steel being the largest company on the planet, where uh, when Carnegie, uh, and by the way, if you take Carnegie's wealth and apply inflation to it, his net worth was if you took about the top 100 of the richest people in the world today and combined them. There's no comparison. They're really not. He owned all the steel on the planet. All of the steel ability to create steel, period, was owned by one man. This is why we have antitrust laws. <laughs> and, and the railroads were owned by another one, Vanderbilt. Right. So you had this series, and you know, this is the time of the robber barons and blah, blah, blah. But the reality is that if you look at what happened then and replaced Andrew Carnegie with the U.S. government and say the U.S. government owned all the steel production and subsidized it in its sales to U.S. companies, because in effect, that's what Carnegie was doing. He gave discounts to American companies. He uh, charged the French a lot of money for steel, stuff like that. He made decisions kind of like a government would if they controlled the steel. He could change governments that he did <laughs> he was not well liked in some places so andrew carnegie replaced them him and the united states government with the chinese government and then you have to throw in a bunch of other private institutions at the time the banking system of the united states was not really a system it was a bunch of individual banks we didn't have a central bank for a big chunk of this and the loans that were 
given out to companies to start up, to go and charge other companies loans, to go and do work, building bridges, skyscrapers, roads, and so on. We had some financial collapses in there. We had some relatively big ones, one called the Great Depression, because the loans and the ownership was weren't regulated well. We can see China walking down that path right now. Their banking system is not a, I mean, it is a system. It's all interconnected. But there's as much shadow banking or more as real banking because the banks are owned by the country. It's a, they're state owned. And a lot of stuff has to be done outside of that system. Well, now they're moving to uh, a digital yuan. And that's going to make the shadow banking harder. And you're seeing some of that now. In the middle of all of this, the Chinese government went on, if we went on steroids to stimulate our economy in the Great Recession, they have gone on super steroids. And they've basically kept that super steroid level going for the last several decades. Where did they get the money to loan to the companies to build the cities that nobody lived in? Where did they get the money to loan uh, to companies to build bridges and roads that either didn't get completed or weren't completed well? Well, it was just basically made by the government. But then they put price controls in areas to keep the, the currency from inflating too quickly and linked it to the dollar. And we have all kinds of back and forth with the U.S. government of a stop linking your money to the dollar. You're giving out too many loans. So this buildup is something that we've talked about over the last several decades on the air. The Chinese have been issuing loans from their state banks that are not payable. You can see that in their Belt and Road. You can see that that's internationally. But you can see it really clearly internally in their financial structure. And there's a lot of ways for countries to move out of that. There's, there's basically just let everybody collapse and rebuild. That's kind of what the United States has done repeatedly. Just let them go. We'll, we'll kind of help the, the hangers on and the people that weren't directly involved in the collapse, but the rest of you guys just lost everything. Figure it out. Where The Japanese said, nope, nobody fails here. Uh, just because nobody can pay you back their debts, banks, we're going to keep you in business. And that led to them being in a stagnation for several decades. They went from one of the highest growth countries to really stagnant because they couldn't get rid of the bad debt. So what happens next for the CCP is how do they deal with this debt? Uh, Bill Clinton had the last time in the United States where we had a surplus and not a deficit. It was under Newt Gingrich as Speaker of the House on the Republican side and Bill Clinton as the president for the Democrats. So who gets credit for that? Well, you guys can argue it out. It doesn't matter. The effect was that George H.W. Bush and before him Ronald Reagan had presided over Democratic Congresses, so this is a flip of what we see when the surplus occurred, to build what's called the Resolution Trust Corporation. To, the U.S. government went and bought up a bunch of bad properties that the savings and loan companies had. These savings and loans companies couldn't pay back their depositors, so the, the government came in and bought up their assets. And at the time, um, the Republicans were shrieking about how this was just a government bailout, and the Democrats were saying, well, not, why doesn't the government just own all the banks anyway? Um, both of those are extreme positions. Over the following years, 
those properties were sold back into the market at massive profits to the United States government. And that was a big chunk of the surplus that we had. Then we had a Republican president come in and said, we have this massive surplus, we just need to lower taxes, which is very rational, very reasonable. And then we got attacked and started a major war without bringing the taxes back up. So now we have a very <laughs> major dissonance between our inflows and our outflows. And who made good decisions and who made bad decisions is irrelevant. This is where we are. So going back to China, China's going to be in a different kind of mess than what we have. Depending on what they do, they are currently in the process of continuing to stomp down on innovation. They went from this several decade practice of slowly loosening the thumbscrews on people being able to produce their own stuff that wasn't owned by the government to, in the last four years, really since right before the pandemic hit, bringing the hammer down on anybody that sticks their heads up or in any way innovating or becoming wealthy. And they're institutionalizing it rather than making it one-off deals at this point, which is throwing their entire growth model into question come uh, from one end to the other at the same time when all these debts are also coming due. So China is in a really weird place. They could devalue their currency slowly. They could fast do it. They, they could try to grow themselves out of this. But the reality is there's a lot of bad debt out there. And at some point, that is going to have an impact. In Japan, they said, we'll just spread out the impact of that over 20 years and not have a single catastrophic downturn in the economy, but a long drawn out stagnation. Now, I think I, I kicked that one enough. Uh, let me kick it one more time. We, oh, we just, right, no, we just came in with a report that last month we had 311,000 new jobs created in the United States. That's way more than the economy needs in a steady state. That indicates the economy is growing and growing significantly. Meanwhile, the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates to reduce spending. Well, if you have 311,000 people with new jobs, they now have money they're going to spend, which means spending just went up. Is that bad? Well, it's not bad for them. One of the reasons, that's one of the reasons the market dipped last week or this week is because the concern is the Fed will look at that and start raising interest rates faster and raise it further and throw us into a real recession at some point. Well, let me give you the backside of that. I'm, I'm thinking the folks at the Federal Reserve are smart enough to recognize this. Wages in that month only went up 0.2%. What does that mean? If we annualize, and that's the way they've been going for about three months now. Wages have, have been rising at about a 2.4% annual rate. The Fed is concerned that we'll get into a wage price spiral where because of inflation, wages will rise really fast. And because of the high demand for new employees, wages will rise really fast. Well, it's, they're not. As a matter of fact, while 2.4% sounds a little steep because that's more than the Fed wants to see prices go up. We also, in the last quarter of last year, and it was pretty consistent through last year, raised our productivity on an annualized rate at 1.7%, which is great. What does all that mean? Well, if wages go up at 2.4% a year and productivity goes up at 1.7% a year, what we have is a 0.7% additional money without value coming into the economy. That would ultimately, in a perfect world and where the math is simple, 
lead to seven-tenths of 1% inflation going forward, which was way below the Fed's target of 2%. Here's my hope. The Fed is going to see those numbers, and they're really smart. And they're going to recognize that those numbers don't signal inflation. But there's another implication to those numbers, though, that are very, that's very important. When a recession is on the way in, the first people to really know it are the business people who pay people, who hire people, who watch how their customers are behaving. They are not seeing evidence of a recession. This is very, very, very unusual. What they're seeing is evidence of a fast-growing economy. They are sensing certainly some evidence of inflation because the stuff they buy that they use to either provide services or provide product has been going up too fast. Um, and that that's a different issue altogether. But they don't see a recession coming. So this is, again, very different because in the past, businesses saw the recession coming before the tea leaves turned. The tea leaves have turned and they've turned violently saying massive recession, which, by the way, according to the stuff that came in last year, should be going on right now. Well, let me explain that not. real quick. When we look at the the index of leading indicators, economic indicators. It's a whole series of things, housing starts and um, confidence levels and things like that. And before, when it drops below a certain point, usually means that you have a, a recession coming in uh, under 12 months. Well, we're our indicators were all out of whack starting in July of last year. We're right at the point where this is supposed to be when we're in the recession based on what it's done, but it's only got a history at those leading indicators since the 70s because we didn't have the records to measure before that. The surveys weren't being done. And uh, so to say that we know for sure that every time this happens, that will lead to this, it's, it's like saying anything else predictively. You don't know. We don't know. And when we look at the indicators, the indicators are all saying this doesn't look good for growth. And yet we have growth. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, my sense of what's going on, and my sense is certainly the worm's eye view, is that the economy is going to do well. It's going to be slowed by the higher interest rates. Mm -hmm. We're going to see some, uh, some things come down. And inflation is not going to go back to zero. As a matter of fact, between 2 and 3% is probably where inflation is going to settle in. Why is that? And, and can I take a few minutes to explain this? I don't want to Yeah, go, go, go right ahead. We're going through a major historic economic change, a huge one. Not at the moment. It is going on right now, but it has been going on since the 1980s. What happened a long time ago under Richard Nixon is that we normalized relationships, the relationship with China. We recognized the communist government and unrecognized the democratic government of China. By the way, this type of thing typically ha ha happens under conservatives, not under liberals, for those of you who want to be political about this. It just happens consistently that way. So what happened? We took the largest nation on the planet that contained a third of the world population and in an in a agri agrarian society where people were still using oxen to plow their fields. And often we're standing in mud puddles with sticks, no right. metal involved. And we brought them into the labor force of the world. And since then, the price of labor, which is the most expensive piece of anything normally, dropped like a rock so that 
two things happened. Supply increased exponentially for almost anything you wanted to have made. And the price of getting it made fell like a rock. Now, let's fast forward from 1982 to 2002. Let's come 40 years into the future. If you've seen pictures of Shanghai or anywhere in China with their freeways clogged with new cars and their nice buildings, the standard of living in China in most for most of the citizens of China is comparable. And people are making a big noise about that, saying their GDP is really bigger because their standard of living is equivalent to ours in many cases. Their standard of living has come up, which means they're making a lot more money than they were making 40 years ago. That is the understatement of the millennium right there. Well, how about India? Well, India's standard of living has come up. Their economy has come up. They're making a lot more money. Two effects from that. Number one, it's no longer dirt cheap to have things made in China or India, which means the prices are going to go up. And just to Number anybody two, who's wondering, the, the statement dirt cheap has been made by people who never had to buy dirt. Go right ahead. <laughs> Number two. Well, okay. Number two, we have had a huge increase in demand because those people who were poking holes in the ground and planting rice, not, not, not the individuals necessarily, but the populations of nations 50 years ago, we're poking holes in the ground and, and, and growing rice are now making a lot of money and buying stuff, a lot of stuff. So two things have happened. The cost of making things has risen and the demand has hugely increased. Economics 101, that equals a rise in prices, a steady rise in prices. Well, we can always go to Mexico. Well, guess what? It's happening in Mexico too. Yeah, the standard the of living there is, is much higher there than it was 20 years ago. If we look back through the 20th century, inflation was going on the whole time. We have had a period of time recent when inflation dropped back to near zero and stayed there for a while. And I can, if you, if you had lots of time, I can explain to you why that happened. But it was a very temporary event. Inflation in the 20th century ran around 3%. There is no reason inflation shouldn't run 3% in the 21st century. As a result, we have had a period of very low inflation and reversion to the mean raises its head. I expect inflation to be between 2 and 3% going forward. And the end result, and here's important, here's the practical effect that we're going to see. Interest rates on bonds and everything else aren't as high as they're going to get, but and they're going to continue to go up and they're going to get back to what we previously called normal and they're probably going to stay there. The concept that you ought to buy bonds right now or you ought to do something right now because interest rates will drop back has very little support in history or in economics. I can't even imagine why people would think that would happen, except for this. Most of the people who are saying these things and writing these things can't remember when it was otherwise. As a result, it's not going to return. I don't think it's going to return to zero interest rates and zero inflation. I don't think we're going to see that in our lifetime, at least not in mine, for sure. And get ready for higher interest well, the Federal the Chairman Powell's keep saying it. Mm -hmm. Get ready for higher interest rates longer than you expect. Uh, and we're about out of time. This is the Personal Wealth Coach with Jeff and Jake McClure. Uh, this is the Personal Wealth Coach, and we do make uh, other statements than really bad puns about songs. Uh, we are uh, a, a finance program, as you would 
probably guessed from the personal wealth coach being our title. The personal wealth coach is not just the title of the program. It's also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm. All right. Well, does that mean that the SEC likes us? What would you say to that, sir? I would say that the SEC is a professionally dislikes almost everyone. Right. That is no implication of the SEC's approval just because we're registered with them. Why is the radio program and the firm named the same thing? Because we have to give this disclosure no matter what it is, and it's less disclosurable. It takes less time to do if it's just the same name. So we've been doing this program here uh, on on this station, 1400 AM in Temple since 1996. We've been doing this a long time and we haven't been paid for it ever. Uh, We also have not ever paid for it. So we've been doing this a long, long time and the whole idea is education. We do advertise as a firm for on the studio, uh, on the channel for this radio program. We don't actually advertise for our firm. We're advertising for the radio program. So what we're saying is that this is educational and we do occasionally get business from it, but our purpose here is truly education. That being said, it's not advice. Advice would be if I knew who you were, if the other bald guy, Jeff, knew who you were and we were able to have a private conversation with you about things in your best interest versus broadcasting to everyone. So we're going to be talking about education which is why we do the program to begin with. So those two disclosures are really one. And having said that, do you deem to tell us another disclosure? Yes. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And he really can't get through the week without that. I think. Right. Uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve. That's generally and portfolio for, management and portfolio management, and that's generally for people with higher net worths. But we make exceptions occasionally, um, and so you can contact us locally. Voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people no phone tree during the week at. You can reach that line tool-free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. Uh, You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are... Uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades, uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given. Um, Thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.